Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, The phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> One man's mistake is another man's lesson. Introducing Scott Miller for the second time around on the Better Call Daddy show. He just launched his new book, Marketing Mess to Brand Success. Scott, welcome. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you very much. How have you been? Oh my gosh. I went back and listened to episode 21, which was you. <laughs> you have the best named podcast because when people are reviewing my schedule, I have like this, you know, group of people that are managing me like, this one must be really cool. What's this about? Like, it's not what you think it is, but it's really cool. I mean, you have the best named podcast out there. Yes. Say it louder. Awesome. How are you doing with the pandemic and the post-pandemic and all of that? Well, one thing that you said on our last podcast episode is that kids will try to ruin your marriage. Wait. Same with COVID. Okay. Wait. Uh-oh. Did no. you survive? No, I survived. I survived. Yeah. Okay. Did your marriage survive? The marriage survived. <laughs> okay, okay. I wasn't but, sure. Were your kids successful in destroying your marriage? Yeah, no, but you know, like the close quarter thing, yeah. like oh. is good and bad. <laughs> in the beginning of COVID, like we're doing the walks and we're like appreciating our time together. I'm like, aren't people at your office like going back? <laughs> you know? Is it time for you to get the vaccine and go to the office? <laughs> Oh, Rena, you're awesome. Oh, man. But it's true. It's like, it's it's wonderful to, to get more quality time with your family, but walks ain't enough. Like, we're both business people and we're both with our kids a lot. And it's good to have, like, I think, another space to be. It's very true. Speaking of which, I've got three boys just home from school, bribed to be quiet for a certain period of time. So let's get started because okay. you never know when they might rear their ugly heads. <laughs> right, because they're just like you, right? They are just like me. They're beautiful heads, actually. <laughs> I, oh my gosh, literally, if I showed you this, like I've doggy-eared so many places in your book, but I'm just going to go with the things that stick out in my mind. Great. <laughs> oh my God, you mentioned like walking into a room and delivering like a business meeting. And then one of your junior analysts on the team coming up to you and saying, we all hate you and we're all going to quit. That is crazy. I actually posted about it on LinkedIn and was like, if everyone in the room hated you, how would you even work that out? Like you were in charge and you hired the whole team, but still like if you're in a room full of people that hate you, that's a very humbling thing. You think? <laughs> Actually, that was from the first book. Wasn't that from Management Mess? Yes, and I want to talk yeah. about that. Like, how did you walk back into a room? I'm sure there were tears. You did say that you cried. But how do you walk back in after an entire room of people hate you and turn that situation around? Well, it either takes a lot of humility or a lot of arrogance. <laughs> One or the two. You know, the story you're referring to came from my first book in the Mess to Success series, Management Mess to Leadership Success. And I shared a story, I think, about Paul Walker, who is now the 
president and um, COO of Franklin Covey. He's my boss now. He, I was his boss, and now he's my boss. Talk about a turn of events, right? Never burn bridges, because you never know which way something's going to go. But it was sobering, but it had several facets. When someone tells you that everybody hates you and they're going to quit, that means one of several things. It means that they have the courage to tell you the truth. It also means that you've created an environment where it's safe to tell the truth. And so I look at it as both ways. I look at it as I had built someone into the leader where they had the courage to tell me their truth. And I'd also built a culture where it was safe to tell me their truth. And I feel good about both those things. I don't feel good about the message that was delivered. It was horrifying and emasculating and probably 82.6% true. Everyone didn't hate me. And I'm sure everyone hated me at some point during their career. It was a very sobering conversation. It was a very empowering. We both cried. He cried. I cried because deep down we liked each other. We had growing pains. And, you know, I was learning to become a leader and he was learning to be a thriving team member under my leadership, right? I mean, all was not perfect and all was not bad, by the way. I mean, he went on to a pretty successful career. And I'll tell you, he attributes a lot of that to you know, what he learned under me, what to do, what not to do, right? I don't regret any of that. What I'm most proud of is being on the other side of it and being comfortable sharing it. Because you know what? Everyone's been in that situation. Everyone may have hated you. You just didn't know it. Everyone may have been frustrated. You just didn't make it safe for them to tell you that and to work it out and work through it. We're still very good friends to this day. I mean, I worked for him. He worked for me and I worked for him. And all those people I'm still friends with. I think most people are very forgiving of you when you show the humility and the self-awareness to talk about it freely, not excuse it, not to point fingers, but to say, you're right, that was tough, man. This was going on and I was experiencing that and I'll bet it was tough for you too. And how great it is that we all forgive each other and can learn from each other. Who wants a beer? (laughs) Did you train him to be your successor? I did, yes. In fact, he took my role as the general manager of that region when I came back to the corporate headquarters and actually became the chief marketing officer. And then, you know, I moved up and then he kept moving up and then he became the president and COO. Like I say, now I, I'm now a consultant with the firm. I stepped away from the company as an officer, but now I am a consultant and I report to him. I, you know, he, he decides if I work there or not as a consultant. We have a great relationship now. Wow. That wow is right. <laughs> is an unbelievable story. Another Always thing- think long-term, right? This is great advice in life in careers, in marriage, in business, do not win the battle, win the war. It's actually a concept that I write about in Marketing Mess, right? It's too many people die in their swords. They want to win the battle. The battle is the meeting. The battle is the product launch. The battle is the campaign. The war is your influence, your reputation, your relationships. And a great lesson I teach in here is don't win the battle focus on the war. I don't mean to use it as an antagonistic metaphor, just focus on the long-term, including your brand and your own reputation. Would you say another way that you won the war was taking your competition out to lunch? (laughs) You talk about a chapter in the book called Friend Your Competition. Now, anybody who's read the books in the Mess of Success series, they all follow a similar format. They're funny, they're raw, they're real, they're outrageous, they're true. And they're all 30 chapters that are very breezy, very quick to read. One of the chapters is also one of the challenges called Friend Your Competition. And this was a story how we were getting our butts beat with high-tech companies. They did not see Franklin Covey as a very relevant, progressive company 
we were more than they understood. But the fact of the matter is the perception of our brand was kind of old and stodgy. So we had these salespeople coming to me as the chief marketing officer saying XYZ company, Vitalsmarts. They're the company behind the fantastic course and book called Crucial Conversations. Phenomenal. They were kicking our butt in the high tech industry, Twitter, Facebook, you know, the big Silicon quarters. So I wanted to meet the person who was kicking my ass. And her name was Mary McChesney. So she was the vice president of marketing and still is for Vitalsmart. So I took her to lunch. I reached out to her on LinkedIn and say, hey, you don't know me. You want to have lunch? That's taboo, right? CMOs don't go to lunch with each other when they're in fiercely competitive business. But you're Scott Miller, you do. So we went to lunch at the California Pizza Kitchen in Provo, Utah. It was kind of awkward the first 10 minutes. All the first 10 minutes are awkward with Scott Miller because I come on really strong and I'm very charismatic and I have never met someone I don't like. And so I can be kind of, you know, a little over the top, a little much for some people. But you know what? That lunch turned into lunches pretty consistently and meetings with phone calls and texts and holiday parties. And we never divulged confidential things. But over the course of that friendship, professional friendship first, both of our companies became beneficiaries of so how do you select your marketing automation? We're thinking of these two. Oh, no, no, don't touch that one. Here's what we did with that, right? And she would call me and ask me questions about email campaigns or databases. And we never divulged proprietary secrets, but our companies benefited from a friendship of transparency, friendship of let's build both of our brands because you never know when they might merge. You never know when we might collaborate on a project with a client. You never know when you might want to come work here. I might want to come work there. And I'm very proud of that friendship. And the best part of the chapter is I turn it over to Mary McChesney and she writes her side of the whole story, which fortunately was similar to my side of the story. So friend your competition responsibly, I think is one of the better chapters in the book. I loved that story too. Another part that I did a LinkedIn poll about was, would you rather be an effective communicator or an empathetic listener? You were talking about how important it is to listen without putting yourself in the yeah. response. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think one leads to the other. I think if you are an empathic listener, you naturally become a more effective communicator. This is a tough one for me, right? I write about this in the first book, Management Mess. I think it was the third challenge, listen first, third or fourth. This is tough for me because I'm a marketer. I'm a sales leader. I'm an influencer, a persuader. I'm always in sales mode. Ask my wife. And so I'm not a naturally good listener. I'm a naturally good convincer. But if you want to build trusting relationships with your family, your team, your clients, prospects, your vendors, you got to move off of the natural temptation to be on your own agenda, your own timeline, your own frame of reference, and really summon a level of unnatural selflessness to check into the other person and really understand empathically what they're saying, what they're feeling, what they're thinking. We hear empathy all the time now, but this is a skill set that's really hard. And I think it's especially hard for a lot of leaders because all of us have spent our careers being trained to speak and communicate and master the stage. We've not been trained to listen. Human resources, that's who was trained to listen, not the leadership sales side. So it's a struggle for me. I admit it, it's a mess for me that I'm constantly challenged with and trying to improve on. There was another story that you told about creating these coin bracelets. And by the way, I want to know, did you make one of those for your wife? I did, but she won't wear it. <laughs> she won't wear it. Oh I my did. God. 
I was going through my coins before this interview and the only coins I could find were go banana tokens. I'm like, what about when I went to Korea? I couldn't find <laughs> any coins. I wanted to like start the interview and be like, hey, I know you made custom bracelets. I have all these. I could not find any. <laughs> hey, this is how Chuck E. Cheese can recover from the pandemic. Chuck E. Cheese token bracelets for every eight year old. <laughs> right, those are like a collector's item now. They are. The story that you're referring to is that I wrote, I wrote about this in all my books because this was an entrepreneurial business I launched in Chicago. It was a custom coin charm bracelet business, right? You pick out this 30 countries or four countries you've been to, and I pick a currency, put it in a beautiful, they actually were lovely, right? Put it in a silver be bezel, and they were, you know, a couple hundred dollars, and the business was booming. And I think the story that I mentioned this in the challenge is don't just do things you love because a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of marketers, if they love social media, they're all in. If they love billboards, if they love television or podcast. And I think we tend to neglect the parts of the business that we're not validated in, that we don't have confidence in. But as a leader, as a marketing leader, you've got to be adept at so many areas of the business and really understand and grow your, your, your skill set across many areas. It was called The World on Your Risk was the name of the company, www.theworldonyourrisk.com. It did really well. Until one day I met this hot girl at the gym. And that hot girl married me two years later and had three sons. Like, what would I rather do? Make out with my girlfriend at midnight or polish coins? I mean, seriously. So I cleaned it up for the book, but that was basically the story. <laughs> well, I'm glad you at least made her a bracelet, whether she wears it or not. I made her a bracelet, but she'd rather have one from Tiffany's, to tell you the truth. <laughs> That's funny. Can you tell me some of the coins you picked for her bracelet? Well, it would have been the countries that she and I'd been to. So Japan, Mexico, the UK, Denmark, Estonia, Sweden, Finland, England, France. I may have mentioned that. There were about 10. When we were dating, I was single, so I was rich. This was before kids, right? So, I mean, I'm like, I'm going to bag this one. We're going to the altar. I'm taking her to Tokyo. We're going to Paris, right? So we did a lot of travel early on, Bermuda. We did some great trips. And of course, as you know, kids, you know. So our first kid... We still traveled. It took him on like 15 countries. Then our second kid, we went to about four countries. And our third kid, I think he went on a token trip to Mexico once, right? I mean, I once boarded Air France with 17 pieces of luggage, three car seats, three strollers, three cribs, not, I mean, 17, I think the baggage fees were more than the first class ticket. It was insane. And that all travel ended right then and there. <laughs> I can't believe you took the cribs too. That's funny. Well, because you we were going to like, I don't know, we were going to Germany or somewhere and you weren't sure they had a crib and my wife was worried, you know, probably like a new mom around, you know, SIDS and co-sleeping and we did it, some of that, but we did some collapsible cribs, but I think it was Denmark we needed a crib or I don't know. That was like pain. That was many, many thousands of dollars ago, right? I really loved that story though, because you were talking about how you loved putting together the bracelets and yes. customizing them. Oh. And, and that's a really creative thing to do. But then like, you know, having to find the money and the currency and dealing with the distribution and that has to play into, you know, the business side of what you're doing now in some ways. You know, for entrepreneurs, I think it's a great story because it really validated. I had been in the intellectual property business for 25 years, right? Selling intellectual property. So to do a business that where I could come home and like, you know, take a coin, polish it, put it into a bezel, close the thing, attach it to a bracelet, put it in a box, write the note, put a bow. It was like, it was 
instant gratification, right? I, I like saw the fruits of my business. It's so helpful. But to your point, I was doing the things I love to do. I wasn't lowering my cost of goods. I wasn't working on better supply chains. I wasn't finding new retailers. I mean, I was, but I was struggling at it and, you know, filing my taxes, which I did, but you get the point. So it's a great example of how we tend to go with our strengths, especially as entrepreneurs. But what happens is, is you neglect the other vital parts of your area of your business that may be responsible for your growth. I mean, here's a good example. I've left the Franklin Covey company formally. I'm still an author, ambassador. I host their podcast and I lead, I lead a team there. But I'm launching my own business now, right? My own brand, my own speeches and books and my own websites. And every day, there's no one now to do my expenses. There's no one to file my taxes. There's no one to schedule my meetings. I have one employee and that poor kid works his heart out. But I'm learning to take my own medicine, which is to spread my time and my talents across the parts of the business that I don't like because they will be neglected. And they're the ones that are going to build my impact and my brand, pay payroll, right? So I'm taking my own medicine in that chapter. It's a good read for a lot of people with side hustles and entrepreneurs, solopreneurs that are building a business to be mindful. Don't just focus on the areas of the business that you get the most validation in, but make sure that you're attentive to all the areas, including marketing. Don't just market the way you want to be marketed to. You may love TikTok, but you know, if you've got a oil changing business for automobiles, I'm not sure TikTok's your best venue, right? So just be thoughtful around, are your own prejudices and biases and proclivities and validations impacting the way you market? They probably are. Would you say part of the reason that you stepped down was because of things that you didn't learn that you should have earlier as well? Like you mentioned, yeah. you kind of mentioned that in your book as well. I do. I was very vulnerable, as are all my books, right? I mean, mess to success. And I'm yeah. seeing a lot of my messes, not for gratuitous fun, but to say, hey, here's a pothole. I went in, walk around it. Here's a pothole. I went in, walk around it, right? They're meant to be books to help people that are interested in the journey of a corporate officer and best-selling author that's made a lot of mistakes. This was one of them. I, I, I talked very openly about when I was the chief marketing officer. I was kind of the smartest person in the room, self-designated. <laughs> it was not a consensus, right? I thought my idea, I thought my role, my, I thought my, my power, Rena, was from being the most creative person, right? The most well-read, the most ingenuitive, the most genius in the room. And there used to be a joke in marketing. There was, there was a marketing division that had 35 people. This is pretty big for a marketing division. The joke was, best idea wins as long as it's Scott's. And that was sobering. And I read Liz Wiseman's book, Multipliers. I highly recommend Liz Wiseman's book. The best leadership book ever written, in my opinion. But I've been in the business for three decades. She talks about how great leaders are not the geniuses in the room, but they're the genius makers of others. That they don't have to always have the best idea. They don't have to run the meeting. They can actually step out. They can step back in later on. They don't have to control everything. So for me, in my attempt, I think, to keep my power, my position, my influence, I had to be the most creative. So subconsciously, I'm not sure that I went out and hired people that would eclipse me. I was in desperate need to be the smartest person in the room. I did the company a disservice. I did our shareholders a disservice. I did lots of things that were great and market cap went through the roof and stock went from $6 to $30. So I was not a total mess. But this was an area that I did step down on my own volition. I stepped aside after eight years, almost eight years being CMO because it was time for someone else to come up. It was time for me to tackle a new thing. And quite frankly, those people needed to spread their wings out from under me. I cast a pretty big shadow. I recognize that. I cast a pretty big, I have a pretty big wingspan, metaphorically. And so the best thing I ever did was leave the CMO role. No, the best thing I ever did was become the CMO because it helped the company tremendously. 
the next best thing I did was to leave the CMO role. Because let me tell you what happened. And when I left, I left. I, like, I walked out with 30 people, put a new VP of marketing in, and I left to go run a different division. And I didn't come back. I didn't naysay. I didn't check on them. I didn't gossip. I didn't go, no. What happened is I came back nine months later. Rena, this stuff was better. The emails, the website, the direct mails, the postcards, the packaging, it was all better. Like, damn, I should have left earlier. Now, my stuff was good, and their stuff under me was good. But I came back, and I thought, that's better. Did you ask them to teach you how to do that? You're like, uh. Well, I wasn't that humble. Come on, throw me a bone. (laughs) But the point is, I could recognize it, and I could call it out to say, Jimmy, your work with me was extraordinary. This is better. This, This campaign, this catalog, this brochure, this is amazing. And so I've learned a lot on the other side of being the leader of the marketing leader. I'm very proud of my tenure. I I don't make any excuses. Our brand is absolutely better because of my contribution. And it's also better allowing all those people to flourish out from under me. Now, the best would have been had they been able to flourish under me, with me. And they did, and they did. But I look back now and recognize that, you know what, especially in marketing, you can't keep up with all all the technology. You cannot be an expert in everything. You've got to surround yourself with experts. And show enough vulnerability and humility to allow people to thrive in their own areas of expertise. This is not an epiphany, right? But I mean, it's one thing for me to say it on the podcast. It's another thing for a leader to have a light bulb go off in her head and say, oh my gosh, I'm Scott Miller. I need to change my style. Most of my books are written in hindsight in the hopes that hundreds of millions of readers over decades will learn from me and say, yeah, I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say this. So I hope my books are a gift people building their careers from a guy who was very successful, but from a guy who had just as many messes as he did successes. I loved your books. And I want to know, who have you been friending up with lately? I did see that you interviewed Brendan Burchard and loved that interview. Actually, I didn't know his emotional like story. Oh yeah. I'm friending up a ton. (laughs) Matthew McConaughey, but I sent him a package today. And I sent it to his pseudonym, not his real name. I love this the Tom Cruise kind of thing, right? And I got some great interviews coming up. Bill Gates and Linda Gates are going to come up. We've got the gentleman who wrote Uncomfortable Conversations with the Black Guy, Emmanuel Acho, I think his name is, a former NFL player from the Cleveland Browns. Ursula Burns, a former African-American female CEO of Xerox. She was the only Black female leader of, I think, of a Fortune 500 ever at the time. I'm friending up people who are younger than me, people that are really up and coming on artificial intelligence and machine learning. So I'm relevant in that. So there's no shortage of people that I'm friending up to. (laughs) This is a concept that I talk about, I think, in the first book. I don't remember. I think it was the first book, right? Management Mess. Yeah. That if you want to build a great career, associate yourself with people who are smarter, wealthier, more educated, more cultured, more traveled, have more money, have more bankruptcies, have more failures, because you'll learn so much from those people. And in return, they will know what you're doing and they will friend up to you and you can offer them knowledge as well too. There's a lot of billionaires and a lot of CEOs that call me up and say, Scott, how do I get on Instagram? Scott, how do I launch my podcast? Scott, how do I get a publishing deal? And it's my honor to help these people who I had friended up to decades to that are now think they're friending up to me. They're not, right? But you know. I love that. You know what else is really interesting? So on my last episode with you, I listened to Stephen Covey before our interview and I loved that interview of the two of you. And then 
you helped me friend up because he was my episode 100. He was. That worked out for you. Stephen M. R. Covey wrote the book, The Speed of Trust. This book has sold almost 3 million copies now. I did not know that you interviewed Stephen. I'm delighted for both of you. Yeah, he's the real deal. He's the real deal. a wonderful interview. And I read every page of his book. And I feel like I prepared more for that interview than others. (laughs) I'll tell you, of all the things that I've read in life, next to Liz Wiseman's book, Multipliers, the 13 behaviors of high trust leaders that Stephen talks about, demonstrate humility, offer apologies, get better, clarify expectations. These 13 behaviors will change your brand. Go pick up a copy of Marketing Master Brand Success. But while you're reading it or before you read it, go pick up a copy of The Speed of Trust. Phenomenal book. It will change your brand forever in terms of how you earn yourself into a reputation of becoming a trustworthy person, spouse, friend, leader, mother-in-law, neighbor, committee member. Another thing that I love that you do, and you just did it right now, is that you really give credit to others. And you did that to Seth Godin in your book. You're like, everybody go read this. And, you know, I've been reading his articles for years and his books for years, and I coach with him. And that's so great. And you mentioned so many people that have been on your podcast and educated you and given back to you. And I love that. Rena, like you, I am the recipient of people giving me their platform, of turning their spotlight onto me, of taking the mic off metaphorically and clipping it on my lapel metaphorically. The successes that I've had, which are quite phenomenal, right? When you look at the people who've afforded me opportunities in life, I write about the messes, but there's been lots of successes. You learn more through someone's messes than you do from their successes. So I don't talk publicly a lot about my successes. But Seth Godin's taught me a lot. He's a good friend. He's lent me his credibility. He's endorsed my books. I've read almost all of his books. There's too many to read, but his blog is just insanely insightful. And I reference his book, This Is Marketing. It's the best marketing book ever written. And in the book, he writes a chapter about the smallest viable market. That's what you're, that's what you're referring to. And I write about that. So buy Seth's book, buy his book before my book. His book's better, quite frankly. Mine's funnier, but his is better. <laughs> Oh my God, that's awesome. How is your dad doing? My dad and my mom are both still in Orlando. They're married 60 years. They're both vaccinated. They're generally healthy. That's very sweet of you to ask. So far, so good. 84, I think, 84 now. He's living a long time, dad. My inheritance is being held up. What the heck, dad? (laughs) I write about my father in the book. I think I talked about him in a chapter around disrupting yourself. My father worked for Lockheed Martin for 32 years and his job was eliminated, did not reinvent himself. Fortunately, he had earned a good living and saved well and had some you know, wealth from family members and such and has taken great care of his family and my mother. My mother was a homemaker. My father's dad died when he was 10 of cancer and his twin brother caught polio in I think junior high school, lived for about a decade or so in an iron lung, died. And as a result, his mother was in mourning most of his life, never, remar- never married, lived to her late 90s, was you know, in mourning and my father, was a troublemaker as a kid, no father, right? His brother was getting all the attention, he was a troublemaker. Got on a train, I think at age 24, ahead of the law up in Minnesota and you know, beat it down to Florida and really reinvented himself. I mean, the law, right? I mean, like kid stuff, right? But the good man, been married to my mother for 59 years. Thanks for remembering him and thanks for reminding me to call him tonight. Oh my right. gosh, if nothing right. else, I'm so glad about that. Yeah. He's aging, right? He's, he's, you know, mentally not as sharp as he was, but I know his phone number and I will give him a call when we hang up. Better call daddy. Better call daddy. <laughs> Look at you tying the branding together. Damn, you're smart. <laughs> <laughs> 
what is next for you? I mean, you've got your own yeah. company, you have an employee, yeah. like. For your viewers, you can see job. So Marketing Mesh to Brand Success comes out on May 11th. It's my best book yet. I've written four, it's my best one, I think. I just finished Job Mess to Career Success. It's behind me in orange. It comes out in January of 2022. I'm now writing Communication Mess to Influence Success. It will come out in late 22, early 23. And then I'm going to be writing Sales Mess to Revenue Success. I'm not sure if it's going to be Sales Mess to Revenue Success or Sales Mess to Client Success. I'm still debating with the success part, but I've got relationship mess, parenting mess. There's a whole bunch of them that are in the work for the next 10 years. So I'd love to come back every year, once a year on your podcast. <laughs> I would love that love too. You. And you are my first repeat guest. Oh, I'm so honored. Thank you. That's, you know what? That's legit, Stephen and Mark Covey. Take that, speed up trust. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Oh my God, that's amazing. Rena, thank you for turning your spotlight onto me and for inviting me back. Thank you for being a supporter and a fan. And you know what? Your and my friendship is like the model because you're helping me and I'm helping you and we are raising each other up and hopefully allowing your listeners and my listeners and viewers and followers to benefit from the mistakes and the successes that we're both making. So thank you again for giving me the opportunity to come back as your first repeat guest. I love that. You had a little bit of a mess starting your podcast and now you've grown it to like 6 million monthly listeners. Yes, you yeah. said in the beginning, like you didn't even have a guest scheduled like right before. Can I tell you something? I've written a new book called Master Mentors. Harper Collins is publishing it in September. Master Mentors, 30 transformative insights from our greatest minds. You can order it on Amazon. And I basically took 30 of our favorite guests and I wrote a chapter about a, a specific insight that they share. People like Dan Pink and Liz Wiseman, Susan Cain, uh, Stedman Graham, there's a bunch. And I got Master Mentors Volume 2 that I'm writing now to come out next year, the next 30 guests. But one of the guests that I mentioned is a woman named Nellie Galan. The name not might be familiar to you. She wrote a book called Self Made. She's the first ever Latina president of a major television network. She was the president of um, Telemundo. And you may know her as one of the guests on one of Donald Trump's Celebrity Apprentice shows. Her name is Nellie Galan. And she talks about, and she had an amazing career, right? I mean, the president of Telemundo, Celebrity Apprentice, best-selling author. She just earned her PhD. She's like, you know, just a ball of fire, like Gloria Estefan with a PhD, right? And she talks, her message is around, there's no such thing as overnight success. There's overnight fame, but there's no such thing as overnight success. And for every success you see in people, oh my gosh, there's a litany of mistakes and failures. How many television programs actually turn into television programs? There's, you know, millions of pilots you know nothing about. They never get aired. To your point, what has now become the world's largest weekly leadership podcast, but I get to the privilege of moderating and hosting and picking the guests. I was calling publicists, agents, editors. I need a guest. I, we're going tomorrow live. I don't have a guest. I, and I looked like an idiot, right? I was calling everyone I know. I need a guest. Who do you got? We have the chairman of JetBlue. I'll take her. It happened to be a him, right? I'll take her. We'll figure it out, right? So again, we had some great guests early on. A lot of my friends came out of the woodwork offering to come on. But you're right. I was in a closet calling our literary agent saying, I need a guest. Like tomorrow. She's like, not going to happen. No, no, no. Oh, no. It has to happen. Who do you got, right? And she was pitching me names. Never heard of her. Never heard of her. Never heard of him. Google him. Wait, he's in jail. I can't take him, right? Who do you got out of jail, right? So it's true. 
I mean, um, early on it was rough going and there was so much hate and email and vitriol. Scott, you talk too much. Scott, it's all about you. Scott, you suck as a host. And I had to learn into it. I had to figure out my groove. People come for the guest, but they stay for the host. And so I had to figure out what my style was. You know, I got skills, I got insights, but it's an interview program and people want to hear from them. And they also do want to hear from me and I got to get great questions. And so I found my groove after 154 episodes, I started to find my groove. But you're right, early on, it was a lot of failures. And there were some guests that we didn't air. I've had a couple of those too. There were some early guests that were just like cuckoo for Cocoa Pops. So I had to keep the interview going and then, okay, that one's not airing. Now, the fortunate thing is they're such big celebrities, they didn't know if I aired it or not, right? I mean, so I was able to put that in the slick of file. You know what? Here will be the test. If this interview gets aired or doesn't, I'm watching you, girl. What's the date? I'm watching you. <laughs> That's awesome. You know what, though? Like, there is some truth to that. Like, some people don't notice whether you air it or not. But yeah. why didn't you just edit that out? You know, it, we, we thought about it. We actually thought about it. We thought about making it funny and putting like an X-rated version and me coming on and saying, you know, we're a public company and we don't take political positions. And so right now the guest is saying some things that are his or her own opinions, but we can't endorse. So I'm going to hum a tune for seven more seconds. But you know what? We decided not to, because we don't want to offend him. I think he took license that he shouldn't have on a podcast for a public company, right? And at the end of the day, this is not my podcast. This is Franklin Covey's podcast. I'm the shepherd of it. I'm the steward of this. We can express our opinions, but we don't trash people. We don't disparage people. It's not who we are. And if you notice, I didn't disparage or trash that person, right? Or the person they were talking about on another side. Would you ever want to do a show that's not so corporate where you oh, could I'd just- love to. Are you kidding me? My books are a mess to success. I'd love, you know what? People say, Scott Miller is best when you just let Scott Miller be Scott Miller. So I'd love to. But I can't do it as long as I am an ambassador for Franklin Covey. And I love that firm too much to ever jeopardize their good standing. And they're a great organization. I have nothing but positive things to say. But there'll be no tell-all book about Franklin Covey because there is no tell-all. Plus, I don't sell people out, right? I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm a very loyal person. Anything you want to ask my daddy? It sounds inappropriate, so no. <laughs> I'm not taking that bait. <laughs> All right, I'll just let him reflect on this episode. Rita, thank you again for the platform. I'm, I'm honored to take up the time of you and your listeners, but I'm watching to make sure you air this interview, okay? Oh my God, I can't wait to hear what daddy has to say. <laughs> thank you, friend, I appreciate it. Now, let's switch it over to grandpa. Chapter two with Scott Miller. And it couldn't have come at a better time because he is a person that has developed humility where he thought that being the right leader is being the smartest or the best person in the room and showing others it was important to him to be the smartest person in the room. But if you're the smartest person in the room, then how do you learn? How do you grow? How do you develop? It's all about you. What's next? Are you going to be the expert in everything? You're going to know more than everybody in the whole world. Uh, there was a lot of people that he was working with that called him out on it. And the funny part is, is that he was working with a fella that at least there was an environment where he wanted people to play it straight with him and not just yes, yes him to death. And he spoke out and said, you know, 
we really aren't enjoying working with you like you think we are. And he was able to switch gears and say, you know something, maybe having others participate, standing up and being able to express themselves is just as important, if not more important than my own input and having them follow whatever I want them to say or do. Being open to ideas, even willing to talk to not only colleagues, but even competitors and being able to share uh, different strategies that aren't necessarily specific to your company, but when it comes to suppliers or different techniques of being able to pool resources, because you just never know, you might end up working with that person again or in a different manner. Look at the relationship I have with Vic. He worked for me for 10 years, and now I work for him in some capacity. Isn't that what Scott Miller is doing? Keeping relationships, building your network, not necessarily being the smartest person in the room, but surrounding yourself with people that might be a better at certain things or smarter people at different things and being able to recognize who is really the top dog, if you want to say, or the understanding who is really presenting the best situation or the best case at whatever the variable might be. And being able to recognize that, that is elevating yourself. That's elevating your company. That's elevating your wisdom, is being able to develop other people and being able to share ideas and elevate the whole room and everyone in it. Everyone then plays better. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 